Yesterday we covered some stuff about sleeping. Today we're going to cover food, or rather, lack of food, and why that's healthy. I think the benefits of fasting are widely discussed and well-known, but how to do it right is some area of debate. So I appreciated this conversation between Tim Ferriss and Peter Tia on fasting and the three levers that he prescribes. One thing that I absolutely learned through fasting is the enormous importance of strength training throughout a fast. It's very easy. You're going to lose muscle mass when you fast. You have to accept that. So the question is, how do you minimize that damage? How do you lose as little muscle mass as possible? And strength training daily during a fast has become an important part of that. But when you look at time-restricted feeding, people call it intermittent fasting, although I don't I don't like that term very much. I think time-restricted makes more sense when you're just talking about you know 16 or 18 hours. I'm really starting to see a lot of people who do that excessively and who aren't necessarily training correctly. They lose weight, but they're losing muscle more than they would want to see. And we just had a patient who we did a DEXA scan on last week, and it was probably the first one we've done in 18 months on him. And in that 18-month period, his body weight had not changed. Maybe he was a bit lighter, actually. He might have lost four pounds. But his body fat was so high, I almost fell off my chair. And he doesn't look chubby. It speaks to how much muscle he's lost. So he, his body fat went from about 18% to 30%. Yikes. Which was, you know, it's just a totally unacceptable amount of fat for someone his age. And his visceral fat went up, which I actually care more about than body fat. We can talk about that later. But his visceral fat also went up. So, you know, this is a guy who has religiously been doing his time-restricted feeding every day, but he doesn't really lift weights. He walks and does some yoga and stuff like that, but he's not doing strength training. So I think in a person like that, there's a real downside to too much time-restricted feeding. And even for myself, like in the last four or five months, I've been, you know, I did a DEXA back in January and I hadn't done one in years. And from January to the last period that I had done a DEXA, my body weight was almost identical. Maybe I was two pounds lighter this year versus the last time, but my body fat was up. I think I went from 10 to 16% body fat. And again, you could say, well, 16 is not the end of the world, but you know, that was a significant loss of muscle and gain of fat. I did wonder if that was just too much because, because I always exercise in the morning, but then don't eat to exercise and then not provide yourself, especially with when you're strength training to provide yourself with any amino acids every single day to undergo muscle protein synthesis, I think is a little bit risky. So I've been looking at other strategies around that. So for example, front loading the meals question, and then we'll come back to front loading meals during that period of time, were you doing and I, this, I may be misremembering, but one three-day fast a month or one week-long fast every quarter? What was the frequency? All of, of the above. Yeah. I, I probably spent maybe two years doing seven days a quarter, maybe a year doing of three days a month. But in between, it's also doing lots of time-restricted. And honestly, I think the daily time-restricted was a bit more the issue. You know, I, I think the three-day fast a month with a lot of lifting, I didn't sense I lost a lot of muscle mm. during that period of time. But I think every day, exercising in the morning, not putting calories in until later in the day, it has to be taken in the context of an individual. So if you're someone who's 100 pounds overweight or you have diabetes, it's a totally worthwhile trade-off to lose muscle mass because you're losing more fat mass along the way. Yeah. So you are going to technically get leaner with that approach. But when you take a relatively healthy and lean individual, 
one has to be a little bit careful and look for alternative ways to sort of get the benefits of that fast. So front-loading meals, could you just walk back and explain? In an ideal world, I think that the best way to do time-restricted eating would be to eat a big breakfast. So it would be to wake up, exercise, eat a huge breakfast. By huge, I don't mean gluttonous, but I mean that's your biggest meal of the day at say, I don't know, like, let's just put some numbers to it. You wake up at six, you work out from seven to 8.30. At nine o'clock, you're eating your largest meal. You eat another meal at one o'clock that is modest and you don't eat again. That would be a great way to do 16 hours of not eating a day. That's problematic for two reasons. The first is it's socially problematic. It's really easy to not have breakfast because very few people eat breakfast with other people, but dinner is our social meal. And for obvious reasons, it just poses a difficulty to be the guy who never eats dinner. Just as a side note, I've been at multiple dinners now, <laughs> quite a few actually, where you've been fasting and we've all been sitting drinking wine and you just like pass the cheesecake at the end and you take a big whiff and then continue moving it along. It's entertaining, but it is pretty antisocial Yeah, to be that guy. To be that guy. Yeah. To, drinking the soda water. <laughs> Um, and then the other thing is, I think for many people, it is hard to go to bed hungry and truthfully in longer fasts, it gets easier because, you know, if you're fasting for seven days, by the time you hit that fifth day, your a lot of your hunger has sort of dissipated, but 16 hours of not eating can generally pose some hunger. And, And for some reason, I just think psychologically in the evening, we're a little less busy. So it's even more noticeable. Whereas if you're doing the traditional way that people think about not eating for 16 hours, it's pretty easy to wrap yourself up and work in the morning, skip breakfast and kind of delay your lunch a little bit. Mm. So I don't know that I have a great answer for that other than I think people should be a little cautious and not just apply the same hammer to every nail and kind of think about their own physiology a little bit and and rely on these technologies like DEXA to make sure, yeah. which again is so so readily available, so relatively inexpensive, and provides both good information about body composition and also this thing of visceral fat. We'll come to the visceral fat uh, in just a second. Uh, on the DEXA note, about, I don't know, a year and a half or two years ago, I recall a conversation with a DEXA technician who said to me, over the last 12 months, I've seen many cases of people coming in who are newly avowed intermittent fasters who have had their body composition flip, basically. I mean, like, not necessarily flip, but they've had massive jumps in the percentage body fat. And I put that on social as a, as a note, not to say that all people who do time-restricted feeding experience this. And it was hilarious and also frustrating to see how many religious zealots there are around intermittent fasting who were just like bite thy tongue you know bite. wait wait but you said that according to this tech that they got better intermittent fasting or worse? no they got worse they, oh, they got worse they, 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 there were so many, it, it, met, it met with what i'm describing it's exactly it's exactly compatible with what you're saying yeah, yeah. Uh, but there was a lot of resistance to the idea that that would even be possible which i which i found really interesting, more social commentary than anything else. I think it just speaks to sort of why I don't like talking about nutrition very much because it does lend itself to politics, not literally, but it's sort of the politics, religion ethos, which is whatever you're eating is obviously the only thing. And 
I guess I just encourage people to be much more attuned to all of the tools, right? So caloric restriction, dietary restriction, time restriction, right? You've probably heard me go on and on about my framework, the three levers, always pull one, sometimes pull two, occasionally pull three, never pull none. So time restriction, what we're talking about, restricting when you eat, but otherwise not restricting how much or what. Dietary restriction is restricting some of the content in what you eat. So not eating carbs, not eating wheat, not eating meat. Not eating like, Doritos. Right. <laughs> not eating sugar. Those are all forms of dietary restriction. And then caloric restriction is restricting the amount. And so if you are never pulling one of those levers, which means you're eating anything you want, anytime, how much, whatever, that's called the standard American diet. Sad. <laughs> yeah, the sad. <laughs> and we've been running a very good natural experiment on that for 50 years and the data are in. So it turns out that less than 20% of the population, probably less than 10% of the population is genetically robust enough to tolerate the sad. So that's a great piece of data. Like there are people out there who can eat KFC and Doritos and pizza anytime they want. And they're generally okay to a first order approximation. I would add that we don't really know the answer to this question because we don't have super granular data at the population level. But notwithstanding that, at least at the surface level, it appears that 10% of the population are largely immune to the sad. But for the rest of the 90% of us schmucks, which I'm certainly in that camp, the sad is lethal. And so you've got to come up with a way to escape the gravitational pull of the sad. And that's why I think having these three levers at your disposal is the key. And yeah, I think that what happens is people get so into the camp of their lever, like it's all time restriction or it's all dietary restriction. Not too many people are in the all calorie restriction group. There's a whole calorie restriction society. And there are, so there certainly are people that are in that camp. Um, but it's usually the first two camps that have the, the most zealots. So I'll just repeat and recap at the end in case you missed it. There are three levers of fasting, according to Peter Atia: calorie restriction, dietary restriction and time restriction. You always want to pull one, sometimes pull two, occasionally pull three, and never pull none of the levers.